Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. All right, well, I'm going to invite you guys to take a trip through time with me um, back to the ancient days of 2007. So think about where you were. Um, The market hadn't crashed yet. George W. Bush was still the president, George W., and the Cupid Shuffle, the song that was at like, that is now at every single wedding you attend had just come out. 2007, where were you? Well, I was in fourth grade. So I just made a bunch of you guys feel old with that statement and I realized that, but stick with me. Um, I remember this year, 2007, um, because a new kid had moved to our school. Um, and this didn't happen all the time at my school. So I remember it. His name was Trey. And Trey was extremely small, you know, even for a fourth grader, he was a really tiny kid, um, but he was actually a really cool guy. Quickly started to get along with the rest of our class. One day we were talking about our dads, you know, we were bragging whose, whose dad was the best, whose dad had the coolest job. Um, there were some CEOs, teachers, some people's dads were, were managers. Um, and after a while it starts to get quiet. You know, people don't wanna add any more to what's been said, they're nervous to be compared. You know, all the coolest dads are already out there. And that's when Trey, the new kid, chimes in. And he says his dad is a world-renowned bodybuilder. And so naturally, we all laughed because Trey was no bigger than one of the potted plants in our classroom. There was no way that his dad was actually a bodybuilder. But Trey stuck to his story. And he told us we would meet his dad at the next parent-teacher night. Well, that night came, and in walks Trey with this behemoth of a man. It was The Rock meets The Incredible Hulk meets Danny DeVito, uh, you know, mostly because of his height. Um, And, you know, naturally, Trey came over to pester us and rub it in, but before he could say a word, somebody in the class said, bro, there's no way that's your dad. That was it. (laughs) Nobody believed him after that. And the crazy thing is, if you actually looked at the man, he was pretty short, like I mentioned. He actually looked quite a bit like Trey, just older and shredded. <laughs> um, and yet nobody, and I mean nobody, believed Trey that night. To miss what is right in front of you is an interesting dilemma. But to choose to miss the truth is another thing entirely. Believe it or not, today's scripture is actually not all that different from Trey's story. Jesus continues his ministry through the, region of, uh, through the region, and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are listening in. So let's read, starting at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, already we actually see what seems to be a change from the Pharisees. They address Jesus with the title of teacher when they speak to him. Plus, we know from Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, that for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Great. So this is a characteristic of the people. Jews demand signs. You know, I'm actually feeling pretty good about this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Let's see how Jesus responds. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. I mean, wow. It's quite a bit to unpack here, but the first thing that jumps out to me when I read this part of the passage is actually the word adulterous. What role does the word adulterous play here? Adultery, if you don't know, is the act of having an affair or cheating on your spouse. 
But I mean, wouldn't an evil generation have been enough? I mean, I feel like evil is an all-encompassing word here. Well, something we know about Jesus is that he is always intentional with his word choices. What he's saying is that Israel was being spiritually unfaithful. Religion had become a formality and a quick way to earn power and claim holiness for yourself. And despite the Messiah being right here, the religious leaders are the first to reject him. The other thing I notice is that Jesus has given them signs. If you've been at Dwell these past couple months as we've read through Matthew, you would know that Jesus has made the blind see, the mute speak, and recently healed a man with a withered hand all in front of the Pharisees. Yet despite this, he actually seems to agree to their request. No sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Let's keep reading. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Okay, so Jesus refers to some Old Testament stories here, as I like to call them OT refs. He does this because the religious leaders would know exactly what he was talking about, more so than any parable or story he could share with them. Since not everyone here in this room would identify as a religious leader, it's okay, you guys can be honest with me, uh, why don't we just quickly summarize these stories that Jesus describes um, to better understand the sign of Jonah. So, story of Jonah starts in Nineveh. It's an Assyrian city. Um, Jonah, who was a Jew, was called to go to Nineveh and preach to the city. So God came to him one day. He said, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to tell them that if they don't repent of their sin, I'm going to destroy the entire place. And Jonah didn't want to go, not because he had anything better to do, but because he hated the Ninevites. Um, he absolutely despised them because they were Assyrians, so they were a threat to Israel. Um, they were pagans involved in the most vicious, vile forms of pagan worship, filthy, immoral people. Jonah wanted nothing to do with these people. So he hopped on a ship to try and run from God. And, you know, see how that works out for you. But eventually, he's swallowed by a fish for three days, and he gets puked out. And I'm not kidding, that actually happens. Um, and then he finally ends up in Nineveh, and he's, you know, he's walking through the city. He's preaching to them a message of repentance. You know, repent, or God is going to destroy this place. And he goes through the entire city, and what happens? They respond from the king on down to the lowest person. In fact, the king puts out an edict and says, we are all going to repent. And they repented in sackcloth and ashes, and God is pleased. After which, Jonah went outside the city, sat down, kind of had a pity party for a few days. You know, he was just kind of bummed out about the whole thing. But what's interesting about this story is that there are no signs or wonders to Jonah's preaching. He just simply walked through the city, and, you know, he didn't even care about the people, and that's not really something you can disguise. He hated these people, yet not a Bible, not one sign, not one miracle, not one supernatural phenomenon associated with that preaching. So the next person Jesus uh, talks about is the Queen of the South, who is probably better known as the Queen of Sheba. Um, she was around during the reign of King Solomon, who was the man who prayed and laid his heart up before God. 
So God was so pleased with the prayer, he told him, listen, I'm going to give you whatever it is that you want. And Solomon asks for wisdom to better lead his people. So news of his wisdom spreads, um, and eventually the queen of Sheba hears about it. And based solely on word of mouth, she decides to cross the desert and see for herself. And you know, people complain about travel now. Think about back then. I mean, she had to like go through this desert. There's probably like bandits everywhere that are trying to like mug her. She had to ride this like ugly camel thing. It was super hot, no flashlight, uh, no phone, no Google Maps. And again, no signs and wonders here. Based solely on faith, she sets out to see Solomon for herself. And then she meets him. 1 Kings 10, 6 through 10 says, Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Okay, so going back to Matthew, why did Jesus bring up these Old Testament references? Well, we see it in verses 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You know, even the Ninevites repented. Without a sign from God, it was purely Jonah's preaching that made them turn from their ways. The queen of the south came all that way to hear Solomon's wisdom on faith alone. And so I think what Jesus is getting at here with these stories is that Signs aren't necessary for faith. But now, there is someone new, someone greater than Jonah, and greater than Solomon. Not someone was standing right in front of the Pharisees. Yet the Pharisees probably could not believe what they were hearing. You know, Jonah and Solomon were heroes of the faith. It was absolutely absurd to compare yourself, let alone claim to be greater than them. So despite proving a miraculous sign was unnecessary, Jesus still promises them the sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or in simpler terms, three days and three nights in the grave. And this is a sign that Jesus made good on. But they didn't believe that one either. Even when he told them to expect it ahead of time, to give them forewarning, Jesus dies for the sins of all mankind, including these Pharisees, Proving once and for all he is who he says he is. And it's still not enough for the Pharisees. You see, I don't think Jesus is necessarily condemning the fact that they requested a sign. It was more about their unbelief. They weren't asking because they wanted to believe Jesus. If he had given them a sign right then and there, honestly, I don't think anything about this passage would have changed. They had seen plenty of signs already even going so far as to claim a few were the works of the devil. No, no, no matter what Jesus did, the Pharisees would not believe who he was. And unbelief is a dangerous thing because it's a choice. So I think it's actually important to define the difference between belief and unbelief because 
Unbelief isn't the same thing as experiencing doubt. It's entirely possible to experience uh, doubt and be doubtful of something that you actually believe in. Um, doubt, the biggest difference is intentions. So doubt and unbelief asks questions to challenge and to tear down, whereas doubt and belief asks questions to learn and to grow. So although unnecessary, the previous signs were right there. There was really no reason to ask for another one. Plus, the Pharisees knew their scripture like the back of their hands. So they would have seen the countless prophecies about Jesus. Here is just one of them that they would have known in Isaiah 53, um, 7 through 10. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Lamb to the slaughter. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. I mean, the writing was on the wall. Jesus was who he said he was. And it's, all, it's possible that some of the Pharisees even knew this, but they chose to not believe. This is the same situation that Trey faced um, when he brought his dad, a man that not only looked strong enough to be a bodybuilder like he claimed, but honestly looked a lot like Trey. Only we had already made up our minds. No matter who or what Trey showed us, we had chosen unbelief. This is what the Pharisees had chosen up to this point. In the story. So as we continue on um, in the Matthew passage, this next part of the passage feels a little bit jarring, but stick with me. It is connected, I promise. Um, essentially, Jesus starts the passage talking about himself, who he is, and what sign he will give the ge this generation. You know, that's what we've talked about so far. And now he starts to talk about the Pharisees and the other lost members of this generation. Verse 43, when the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." So in order to show what their condition on earth would be if this generation continued in unbelief, Jesus compares them to a man who had found deliverance from a demon. And, you know, this man honestly tried to clean up his life, get stuff figured out. And we see in the passage that mere religion isn't enough for that. It's like what our guest speaker Brian said a couple weeks back. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. The Pharisees were religious. They knew the passage, they knew the biblical law, but they clearly did not have a personal relationship with God. 
Had they taken a single second to pray for God to reveal, is Jesus the Christ? We would have had a very different story on our hands. Isn't that crazy? A simple prayer, nowhere near as complicated or heartfelt as Solomon's prayer that we talked about earlier, could have radically altered how things went down. That's not to say I don't think the Pharisees ever prayed. I just think their heart posture was not where it should have been. Um, Jesus actually calls this out uh, earlier in Matthew, Matthew 6, 5, when he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. I think if nothing else, walk away from this sermon knowing that prayer is not only powerful, but has the potential to be eye-opening for you. Do not let prayer be the weak link in your relationship with God. So going back to the passage, because the man in the passage put his trust in religion and not God, the demon returns. This time it brings seven of its demon buddies to move in, making the man's condition worse than the last time. The Pharisees and religious leaders were in serious danger of this happening to them. Especially since, as I mentioned earlier, it seems they had trouble deciphering the difference between God's power and Satan's power. Um, Earlier in Matthew 12, a couple weeks ago, we talked about verse 22. They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Because that makes sense. Um, By confusing the power of God and the power of Satan, the Pharisees were falling right into the trap of the enemy. Without even knowing it, they would become servants of Satan through their weak religion. So what do we do with all this? It's been 2,000 years since this happened. And can we really say we as a people have changed all that much? There are still things people tell us, Jesus tells us even, that no matter what, we refuse to believe. So I want you to check your heart. Everybody has doubts. That's a normal thing. But do you find yourself asking questions in that doubt to learn or to challenge? So if you would identify as someone who is following Jesus, I want you to really wrestle with that question. And if you find that you are struggling with unbelief, please take that to Jesus and spend some time in prayer. The Gospel of Mark actually shows us a great example of how to do this in chapter 9. There's a father whose son has been possessed since birth. He feels hopeless, and he brings the son to Jesus. So Mark 9, 21 says, And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water, to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. So if you are struggling with unbelief, I want you to remember this passage. Remember the father who, despite this awful torment of his son, despite his own unbelief, chose to go to Jesus and ask for help in a hopeless situation. I believe. Help my unbelief. If you would identify as someone who isn't actively following Jesus, you know, first off, welcome. Super glad you're here. 
Um, I think there's still great value in wrestling with that question. If you have doubts about Jesus, as we all do from time to time, do those doubts come out of a preconceived notion or a genuine curiosity? You see, there are plenty of avenues in this world that we can put our faith in for things like protection, guidance, and purpose. We put our faith in friends, work, family, religion. All great things that can help you, but sooner or later, those things will wear thin and fail us. This is what Jesus is getting at with the second half of the passage. Sooner or later, those trials and tribulations will return more powerful. And the only thing that is greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, and greater than the evil of this world that can save you is faith in Jesus. Something that you cannot fully have when you choose unbelief. So I'm going to leave us with this verse from Romans 10, 9, as we transition into a time of response. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.